Hi, everyone, and welcome to the PBN Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Lockie. Today, I'm really excited to introduce you to the brilliant Mr. Leo Venus. Leo is half Norwegian and half Brazilian, and he's a medical student currently studying in Ireland. He's also a plant-based athlete and can be found passionately advocating the vegan and plant-based life on his social media channels. He has a deep passion for nutrition and preventative medicine and aims to show people that it's totally possible to be fit and healthy on a plant-based diet. As a doctor in training, he brings an inside perspective on the evidence behind the benefits of a plant-based diet, as well as the shortcomings of the medical industry. Welcome, Leo, and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, before we start talking about your current life and all the things that you do now, let's talk about your vegan journey and how you discovered this lifestyle. How did, how did, how did you find it? How did it find you? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. Um, for me, it was uh, kind of funny, actually. It was uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine who introduced the whole vegan idea to me. I, I never heard of veganism before. I knew very little about it. At the time, this is actually six years ago now, so it's starting to be a while. And at the time, I was doing my bachelor's degree in bioengineering in Norway. So I was already getting into the scientific method, research, uh, going through the literature, statistic analysis, all that kind of stuff. So I was already in the in the scientific field. So w- when I was introduced to it, I was like, ah, well, sounds like, sounds like one of those things, you know, one of those a bit out there kind of concepts. But I... Uh, Hippie stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the tree hugger stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so you know I, I i decided to watch a couple of documentaries with her and a lot of the things that were being said went completely against what i used to believe so i i looked into it i would go look into the scientific literature look at studies and i would actually find to my surprise that many of these claims were actually backed by science and so i i just thought to myself that, you know this can't be true i have to look more into it and the more i read about it the more i realized wow this is not just another hippie, you know, tree hugger movement, but there's a lot of good science behind it. And so I decided to give it a, give it a shot at first for health and uh, then things progressed from there. So, so uh, yeah, so you, you obviously uh, are, what's the word, bi-national? No, what's the word? Like you're a multi, <laughs> multicultural <laughs> person. You've, you're from, from two different parts of the world, Norwegian and Brazilian. So tell me a bit about like the, the town that you grew up in. Did you grow up in one of those countries or somewhere else? Yeah, so that is a very, very long, confusing story. So uh, okay, basically, that's, yeah, that, that question, you just dug yourself into a hole because this is going to take a while. So, uh, <laughs> Well, you can, give us the, uh, you can give us the abridged okay. version. <laughs> I'll, try, I'll try my best. So basically, uh, I was born in Norway, uh, in Oslo, the capital city. Uh-huh. And uh, about yeah. a month later, we moved to Brazil, uh, where mm-hmm. my mother is from. So we lived there around seven years. Okay. Uh, so wow. obviously I grew up with a soccer culture there, got into all of that, uh, the barbecuing, and that was a big part of the mm-hmm. family culture as well. And then through my dad's work, we went to the U.S. for one year in Connecticut. So mm-hmm. got to learn a little bit of English there. It was a fun experience. And then we went. So you were speaking Norwegian when you moved to Brazil? Yeah, so I, so I would speak Norwegian to my father and Portuguese with my mother. Uh-huh. And then we'd be wow. speaking, I guess, in uh-huh. kindergarten and stuff like that. Wow. So you're tri- trilingual. Impressive. Well, actually, uh, probably more, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that in, in a second. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's very confusing. I tell this to everyone, but okay, let's, let's continue then. So after uh, the U.S., we went to Norway for two years in Trondheim, which is uh-huh. kind of Midwest coast uh, where 
I lived for yeah two years, and then you know coming from Brazil, my mother lived her whole life in a tropical climate, sun, warmth mm-hmm. all year round, and then you get to Norway where it's just dark six months of the year and snow and cold and mm-hmm. icy. So that was a little bit too uh, shocking of a change for her. So after um, two years there, that was enough. We needed a, a change, so we ended up moving to Barcelona, Spain, which is actually where they still live. And mm-hmm. uh, that that's uh, probably the nicest place, climate-wise at least, that we've lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and I lived there five years, so I just started high school uh, before. Mm-hmm. Again, my father got another job promotion, so we ended up going to Texas, USA. So oh, wow. I lived there three years, finished so high school. You've been all over. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very so all over the place. <laughs> so, so generally speaking you know you've 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 been in very similar kind of cultures western cultures however you know you compare texas to kind of norway you know there's a kind of quite a difference in the way these cultures are and how they consume animals like obviously in the u.s people eat a lot more meat but obviously as a young man like eating meat and sort of eating animals is it always wherever you've lived has that always been a big part of your diet? Um, absolutely. Uh, luckily for me, I've been very fortunate that my parents were always very health conscious and my mother would always try to cook yeah. very healthy meals ever since we were small. So we have yeah. always had a lot of vegetables, a lot of fruits, a lot of whole grains in our mm-hmm. diets. But as you say, we did have a lot of meat, uh, especially the Brazilian culture. You know, our weekends, it was almost a religious practice. Every Saturday would be, would be barbecue <laughs> day. So we'd have rump steak. Uh, sausages chicken would have even chicken hearts which sounds disgusting for most people but uh in brazil yeah. this is normal you know you'd come with a big spear of chicken hearts and you'd start looking at that spear and you think you know that's that's 50 chickens you've got on the spear you know so wow it's, uh, it's pretty different but um yeah so so it's always been a big part um in norway it's more fish and uh and you know there's some small variations but uh, yeah it's, it's definitely been a, a big part throughout my entire life mm-hmm and obviously like being a young man people, a lot of people talk about the connection between meat eating and masculinity like do you uh, see that in these kind of western cultures that eating meat is a way to express your masculinity because it's always seen as people who don't eat meat are feminine or women who don't eat meat vegetarians aren't strong like growing up in those different environments did you experience that kind of um rhetoric that kind of dogma that you know you had to be a man uh, for, for you to be a strong and masculine man you had to eat meat yeah absolutely I, I don't think you know it was never put forward to me that obviously but absolutely you know subconsciously you get conditioned throughout throughout your childhood yeah. and that's growing up as you say um absolutely like in in brazil it, it's such a big thing in texas it's probably one of the strongest places in terms of you know I, grass or veggies that's what my food eats you know that kind of stuff it's a, you know, very big over there uh, barbecues are very big over there too yeah. but yeah it's, it's definitely a belief i had up until i started looking into the research i always thought meat was an essential part of the diet if you want to be strong if you want to be athletic mm. it's just one of those things mm. obviously we all know when we eat mm. meat that we're eating animals and that kind of thing but i always used to think well you know it's i love animals but i i have to eat them you know it's just it's just part mm-hmm. of our diet you know Mm-hmm. 
And was there like, you know, a lot of people talk about the the pressure on young men these days to be and behave in certain ways. And this, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion. Nimai Delgado talks a lot about to- toxic masculinity and yeah. the pressure that young men have on them to be in a, be a certain way, um, have a certain aesthetic, be, a, you know, have a certain amount of strength. Growing up in all these different countries and all these different parts of the world, did you, from your peers and from people at school and from even from family, was there any pressure for you to be a certain way to, you know, boys don't cry and boys need to be strong and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think these, these things are really hard to, to say, you know, concrete examples because it's not something that is overtly communicated to you as you're growing up, but absolutely. I mean, in movies and TV shows growing up, there's always these messages subliminally being communicated to you without you even being aware. So I've, you know, I used to think, eating meat was masculine and you know boys don't cry all this kind of stuff just gets ingrained in you but uh as you said it's it's not i mean for me in my personal belief if anything being manly and being masculine and should be more about taking care of the weak taking care of the vulnerable you know rather than expose because the way toxic masculinity as you put it i think is a very good uh term because it really it's not it's not a nice way of thinking if you objectively take a third person standpoint and look at how we define masculinity today it's all about not caring not uh, mm-hmm. giving a crap about what's going on around you and and just exploiting everything you know the might is right kind of mentality it's it's very ugly when you really take a step back and you re- really think about how people are thinking about this but um yeah no i i think there was definitely a bit of pressure looking back, but not not in in any not any big pressure. No no one in the family was talking too much about that or anything like that. So I think I've been not, yeah. not too pressured, absolutely. Yeah, it sounds like you've you know, and, and from seeing some of the the interactions you have with your family, it sounds like you were brought up with parents who kind of encouraged you and allowed you to be yourselves. Um, I can imagine they allowed you and helped you develop that strong independence because, you know, obviously, you know, seeing you on social media and your brother, John, as well, you're both very independent people and very passionate and uh, self-assured as well. Now, obviously, you know, that comes down to, you know, a positive mental attitude and mental health, um, you know, being a resilient young man. Now, you know, having that support network around you definitely facilitates that positive mental health. But um, as I'm sure studying medicine and being surrounded by medical people, you're aware that mental health issues amongst young men in the world today are huge, um, especially when, when we talk about suicide. Just in the UK alone, 5,600 young men take their lives every single year. That's a rugby team of men every single day. Um, and it's a, it's a, an epidemic. I and mean, it's not just, um, you know, the UK, it's worldwide wide 800,000 people take their own lives every single year worldwide um, and it's getting bit bigger and, and more increased and actually men under 55 are the biggest um, kind of group of people um, kind of prone to this in your mind like what do you think are some of the, the, the cause p- potential causes of young men kind of feeling this pressure and potentially taking their own lives as as a as a medical um, graduate, uh, well, not medical student. Are you, are you aware of these numbers and these this information? Uh, well, I haven't actually looked at the the numbers. I've heard of the worldwide numbers, and I know the prevalence or the amount of people who are currently depressed is very high. I think it's coined around eight eight percent of of the population in general suffer from depression at some point, yeah. which is extremely high. 
And, um, you know, I think that is such a complicated question. I mean, there are so many, it's one of those things that in psychiatry, there's so many things that go into a person's mentality, a person's attitude, their mental mm-hmm. resilience, all this kind mm-hmm. of stuff. It's, you can't really just point out one thing and one thing only, but what I would say is that more and more today in the world that we live in, the modern world, it is very, very easy for people to almost become a little bit disconnected from reality and become isolated to the point where your yeah, inner your absolutely. inner belief system doesn't align with the actual reality you live in. And I think that mm-hmm. is one of the core issues causing a lot of mental conflict within people is that you know they believe mm. things should be a certain way, but then when reality clearly goes against their beliefs, then you know there's there's that constant conflict inside and I think that's one of the, mm. you know, there's so many other things that go into it. I mean, diet probably has a lot to say, you know, poor sleep, hygiene, uh, all of these things. Yeah. But I, I think definitely one of the one of the big things is having a belief system that actually aligns itself with reality, I think is, is very, very big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's so many stories of, of people switching to a plant-based diet, though, and finding their mental uh, health and, and kind of well-being uh, changing considerably. Now, there's a lot of research, and I saw, I'm sure you're kind of touching on this in your studies or, or looking at it personally, uh, where we're now starting to see the gut as the second yeah. brain and talking about how uh, the gut microbiome um, generates huge quantities of serotonin, for example, which is, you know, the hormone, which is the neurotransmitter in the brain, which helps balance exactly. mood. Um, is this an area that you're interested in? Have you ever looked at any information around yeah, absolutely. that? Absolutely. It's super fascinating to me. It's just one of those really great examples of how knowledge evolves over time and how medicine changes so much. I mean, mm. just even a couple of decades mm-hmm. back, nobody even cared to think much about the gut flora or, you know, antibiotics yeah. causing all these issues and killing off all of your good bacteria and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really great to see, you know, people becoming more aware of this kind of stuff. And I think, as you say, that diet has to play and gut, the gut, uh, serotonin levels, all these kind of things. A lot of people tend to think of the human body as compartments and you try to compartmentalize everything and think, you know, you have all these different systems. Whereas in reality, your body is a w- one big system that is working together all the time. And mm, like a symphony or like an exactly, orchestra. Exactly. So, you know, it's in reality, you don't just, you know, if you're, you have poor health, you're not just going to have one issue, one place in your body. There's going to be issues that affect your entire body as a whole. So, you know, you see this with cardiovascular disease where where people think, they, oh, I have erectile dysfunction. Well, no, that means you probably have cardiovascular disease elsewhere, as, as in your kidneys, your heart, mm-hmm. your brain. You know, mm-hmm. okay, it's, it's, it's one big system. And, and when you remember that, you can realize how one lifestyle factor can actually have such a great impact on all of these different things, including mental health. And uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's just fascinating to see because one of the things you realize when you start studying medicine is the quantity of information that, or the quantity of systems and diseases and, and processes that we actually have very, very limited understanding of. And there's so many things in medicine that we don't know how it works. A lot of treatments, we don't know how they actually heal or how, we just we just see that they work in, in practice. We give them and patients get better. We say, oh, it works. We don't actually know how. 
uh, or, or for some diseases, oh, we don't know how this mm -hmm. disease comes. It's idiopathic is the word for, oh, it's unknown cause. Mm -hmm. But then you can see the effects of these, these therapies that have been used for, in some cases, you know, thousands of years in lifestyle and, and all this stuff that everybody really knows if you really dig deep and you think about it, that living a healthy lifestyle is really going to do well, not just for your heart or for your lungs, but for your entire body. And you see that more and more today. And it's really nice to see medicine take this a little bit more of a wholesome approach in terms of uh, uh, its research and looking for areas to, uh, to learn more information. So it's absolutely super fascinating. Yeah, things are changing rapidly. I mean, I'm really impressed by the work of PCRM and Dr. Neil Bernard in the US, where they have thousands of physicians all working together to challenge the mainstream narrative of, of medicine. Yeah. Um, oh, if, they're so impressive. Yeah, it's wonderful. If there was an organization like that in Europe, would you be uh, considered being a part of it? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, more and more countries are starting to, I guess, have the starts of these uh, a bit more lifestyle, preventative, medicine conscious organizations bringing in plant-based lifestyle, vegan lifestyle. Even in Norway, there's a couple of doctors who are starting a kind of a, a vegan doctor community in Brazil. There's a big mm -hmm. one. So it's, it's really, I think it's definitely coming up because it's, it's one of those things. Doctors aren't really taught nutrition mm -hmm. in medical school. At least I can't talk for all medical schools in the world, but at least in the medical school where I study in Ireland, which is a very respected medical school there, we are taught next to zero. We were taught just the very basics, you know, mm -hmm. protein, fats, carbohydrates, the amounts of calories per gram. We were taught the food pyramid from 1992. <laughs> like, wow. Nothing, nothing uh, to brag about. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, so I was going to say, we definitely like, would like to talk a bit more about the, the, the mainstream kind of medical industry and kind of how it kind of lords itself over the world and generates a lot of profit. But I'd like to little go back a little bit, a few steps and go back to kind of, you know, the vegan side of things and kind of talk, talk a bit more about your understanding of um, the animal side of things. Because obviously, you know, vegan as, as a definition, it was obviously founded in, in 1944 and it's a life for those who are listening. It's a lifestyle that seeks to exclude as far as possible and practical all forms of exploitation and or cruelty to animals for food, clothing and all other purposes. So this lifestyle, which has become quite uh, mainstream actually and a lot of big publications now including the economist has said 2019 is going to be the year of the vegan according to the economist which is oh, wow. qu quite exciting right quite exciting to see um and but as far as like animals go because obviously you first mentioned that you switched to this plant-based lifestyle because of health but um you know i've watched a lot of your social media and you're very passionate about v being vegan and like not and being unashamed about it and standing up and saying i'm a vegan i'm passionate about it because a lot of people when they take on this lifestyle and try the plant-based kind of way of eating they're a bit mm. i wouldn't say shy but they're a little bit kind of like reserved about standing up and saying i'm a vegan take it or leave it and i really love that you're not afraid to do that you're really proud of it and i think it's brilliant that young men like you especially involved in the medical profession as well are prepared to stand up and put that what you which we we would call a label on yourself and, and be unashamed to, to do that and i think it's absolutely brilliant yeah no it's you know with with that whole thing it's it, it's only made sense for me as i as i went on so as you said i start mm -hmm. off just with health and at first you know i for, for a health from a health perspective what really matters is what you do on your everyday so i would eat plant-based i'd eat a lot of veggies legumes whole grains fruits all that kind of stuff on my everyday mm -hmm. life but whenever 
I went to a party or I visited my grandfather or anything like that, or I went for a Christmas celebration, whenever somebody served me a dish that wasn't vegan, I would still eat whatever I was served because, you know, mm -hmm. back then I would say, uh, it's just, you know, impolite and it's, mm -hmm. what, it's what you eat every day that counts towards your health. But around maybe I would say a year into it, first off, that was already surprising that I was even a year into it when I started. I thought I would do it for a couple of months and then mm. I'd probably fall off because it would be too difficult. But it was surprisingly easy. And when I got maybe just under a year into it, I started getting more into the ethical, the environmental side of things. I started watching documentaries like Conspiracy, like Earthlings, and started looking into the information, the UN statistics on pollution and, mm -hmm. you know, the animal rights, uh, start looking at, at how farms are run in different countries because you know, that's one of the things that everyone says, my country isn't like that, it's way better here. But then you take a look at every country, it's basically the same. So about a year in, I decided, okay, that's it. I'm cutting it completely out even when I'm visiting people, even when I'm, you know, at a party or at Christmas, I'm just going to say no. I'm no thank you. I just don't mm -hmm. eat that kind of stuff. How um, did your family respond to it? So that's <laughs> it's very funny. For with my family story, it's very funny because, as you know, uh, John Venus is is uh, you know huge on social media and he's done so much for the vegan movement. But when I went vegan six years ago, he was the most against it in the whole. Family. <laughs> he he was he was almost a little bit even aggressive and angry about it you know because like it's i said John quite our, stubborn our, yeah i think we're all a bit stubborn in this family to be honest <laughs> for those <laughs> but, who are uh, listening do you want to just explain so john is a um he's a professional bodybuilder and um youtuber and, and, and youtuber and, and, yeah i'll yeah. let you let you explain tell, tell us who john is and what john does yeah so john is my older brother he is uh, three years older than me and um basically he is now one of the biggest influencers in fitness and, and vegan bodybuilding and uh he has a social media on instagram and youtube i think he just passed three hundred thirty thousand subscribers or so on youtube wow. so amazing really, really good stuff and um yeah when i went vegan six so what, years what's it like for, yeah what was it like from from him going from like being really anti it to like being massively into it for you yeah so basically i, I guess it, it just took time uh it, yeah you know, the, the automatic the first knee-jerk reaction was to be like hey leo what the hell are you doing you're you're going against all of our family traditions we love barbecues this is who we are what are you doing you know this is this is just a phase you'll get over it whatever you're just doing it for your girlfriend at the time you know all this kind of <laughs> all this kind of stuff and then i would just you know slowly let people know how i thought and why i'm doing what i'm doing without trying to be too aggressive about, you know, oh, you all have to do this as well. But I'll just try to explain it and introduce them to some documentaries. And eventually, John and my the rest of my family included became more and more open towards the idea to the point where at least John accepted, okay, you can be vegan and you're not going to die. You're not going to become unhealthy. But it's, you know, it's, it's not a, a big issue or it's not something I want to do uh, because... It's, it's not great for bodybuilding, that kind of stuff. So it was it was an acceptance stage where everyone was okay with it, but wasn't really on board. Uh, and for John, I think that is probably because I pushed a lot of the health research, a lot of the health information, mm -hmm. whereas for John, what really pushed it for him was actually watching Earthlings. So when I, oh, wow. when I actually influenced, or not influenced, introduced that idea to him and showed him Earthlings, and he watched it with 
his uh, now wife, Catherine, in it when he was studying in London. And mm. they watched that and they decided right there and then there, okay, this is, this is horrible. This is wrong. Wow. And we're cutting Did he out. call you and say, Leo, you were right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't think we actually ever had that moment where he was like, Leo, you were right. But uh, I, think, I think we we just have a mutual understanding now. <laughs> you know, the big, the big brother can't, can't say to the little no, brother. No, yeah, it's right. against... Yeah, it's against the rules. <laughs> exactly. No, but <laughs> the was, unspoken brother code. Exactly. No, but it was so great because, I mean, he's done so much for the movement now. And for me, it's just one of those examples where it goes to show that even the person who is the most against something can actually become a really great proponent and an advocate for that lifestyle later on. So it's mm-hmm. it's just one of mm-hmm. those things to people who are listening. Just don't give up on anyone mm-hmm. who's giving you a hard time. Yeah, you know, it, There's always hope. It might take time, but don't give up. Yeah, absolutely. I'm into that. Speaking on like the method in which you advocated originally to John was the health side of things. And obviously you're studying uh, at medical school in Ireland. Um, what kind of, what kind of things are you studying? And when you graduate, where, uh, what's going to be your focus? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I've always been into health and science and biology and all this kind of stuff. And right now I'm just doing my general medical degree. So, uh, by summer 2019, I will have graduated. So that's, Basically, I'll be a doctor with a medical degree, but then what happens is most people then go to start their specialization. So depending on where you go, that's a different process. For me, I'll probably go to Norway at first for my internship, uh, and I'm, I'm looking to try to incorporate the vegan lifestyle, the, preventish, the prevention side of things, uh, lifestyle medicine, as much as possible. So as things are looking now, I'm probably aiming towards family or general practice, family medicine, and try to incorporate some public health uh, advocacy into it. So, you know, nothing set in stone. I'm not sure about any of it yet, but I, I just really want to use the knowledge that I've acquired to actually help people take control of their health because the way medicine is run today, unfortunately, is in a way which a lot of times we're just we're just treating the symptoms we're just looking at what what's really not really what is going wrong with the person itself but what people are complaining of the symptoms and we try that it's a very superficial kind of uh therapy one of the documentaries that really puts this well is uh, one called eating you alive i don't know if you've if you've watched that one yes yeah they talk yeah it's really good and they really talk they really put it nicely where they talk about the acute care model where we're trying to use the acute care model to treat chronic lifestyle diseases and where acute care model is is so good for uh, acute life-threatening diseases for infections all this kind of stuff it's absolutely great but for chronic lifestyle diseases it just does not work and so it, it just there's this disconnect in the medical industry where we're trying to use the acute care model to cure or to treat these people who have conditions that are just the the cause of them are just so different that it, those therapies don't work and so we we have you know people have this completely unrealistic expectation of when they go to the doctor and they get a pill for their heart disease they think they're cured or that they're safe from getting a heart heart attack or mm. when they ha- mm-hmm. and that's obviously not the case people who are on stands people who take medications for heart disease still get their heart attacks they might just and that's another misconception that the public really has 
is the effect of a lot of these drugs. People have this belief that when they take this drug, this is going to, you know, make it almost impossible that they are going to suffer from the disease that they're getting treated for. Whereas when you look at the actual evidence, the research that is done, the clinical trials looking at the benefits of, for example, statins and heart disease, you're really talking about a reduction of just a few percent in terms of wow. how likely you are to get a heart attack. So, you know, the the effect of these therapies are also massively overestimated by the public. And that's where I think it's, again, going back to that whole disconnection from reality. It, it applies to so many areas of life, mental health, but also just general health and, and, and the medical industry as well. So uh, it's, it's definitely something I want to focus more on and I want to spread knowledge about this so that people can it's all about empowering people really because i think a lot of the decisions people make today they make because they lack the knowledge and they lack the understanding mm -hmm. that is required mm -hmm. to make the best choice for them in the long term to make the best choice for their health so it's really just about educating patients and and taking that role of you know giving them advice and trying to show what the whole picture is and then helping people to make the right choices rather than this paternalistic culture that has been in medicine for so long where it's mm. just that i am the doctor i say this you follow my orders mm. and and that's it you know that's that's mm -hmm. a model that is far far out, outdated and it's quite sad that unfortunately a lot of a lot of doctors still work this way but i think it's it's on the way out and um yeah that's uh, yeah just so why just going back onto what you said before about how you only get very little nutritional training considering you know as organisms, we are what we eat. Why is it that the medical profession uh, trains their their students in such a small quantities when it comes to uh, nutrition? Why, you know, when you speak to a doctor, most doctors get their nutritional information in the same place everyone yeah, else exactly. does. The media, the internet, family, friends. You know, why? Why? What's your theories on why there's such little yeah, training? Yeah, uh, that's so frustrating. This point that you're you're touching on now, as a medical student, it, it's the thing that frustrates me the most. And, uh, I mean, just before I say anything about that, I just want to <laughs> mention just because I am currently in medical school, I just want people to hear the kind of stuff I hear, not just from medical students, but even doctors who are working in hospitals, professional doctors, they tell me things like, uh, you know, where do you get your protein? How can you get enough calcium you know, without milk? I've heard things like you can't eat carbs because they make you fat. You hear all of the kind of stuff that you hear just from people in general, and you wouldn't expect from the exactly. newspapers. You wouldn't expect doctors <laughs> as scientists, as the health experts to get this completely wrong. But like I said, most medical schools have little to no nutritional training. And my personal belief is that like any other organization, medical schools today are mostly privately funded organizations and they need funding. And most of funding, unfortunately, today comes from industry. So you already have that huge conflict of interest where the industry unfortunately as it is today makes more money off of people being sick for a long time and makes very little money off of mm. lifestyle and food and broccoli you know the big broccoli industry doesn't really exist so uh <laughs> exactly broccoli lobby as dr uh, greg yeah, calls exactly. it <laughs> so it's not that doctors are necessarily evil or they're trying to you know push pills and make money a lot of doctors actually believe what they're saying, they're just as in the dark as most people are when it comes to nutrition. They think they are doing their very best. So I think it's just the the industry is has an effect, whether it's conscious or unconscious. 
I mean, there are definitely cases of, of big industries manipulating studies and, and designing studies in a way to to really make their products seem to be a lot better and a lot healthier for you than they actually are, which is obviously very misleading and very disingenuine, almost criminal in my opinion, because obviously they are consciously mm-hmm. and almost, yeah, well, basically they are consciously putting people's health at risk in order to increase their profits, which is completely unethical by any mm. standards. I think most people will agree on that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think, unfortunately, it just comes down to money. Uh, it's nothing new. It's been like that for a long time. But the nice thing about it is that even though doctors today are not trained in nutrition, we're not taught about the effects of food on our health the way that most people would hope. And, you know, it only makes sense. You can't fault people for thinking about this because, like you said, Food is such a central role in our health that as health experts, you'd only assume that doctors would know a lot about nutrition, but it is not the case. We are not taught. However, what we are taught in medical school is scientific thinking and being evidence-based because obviously as a doctor, you can't just go to a patient and give them some random treatment that you think is going to work. Everything, all the advice you give has to be evidence-based. So we have something called the hierarchy of evidence where we talk about the different qualities of scientific evidence research and that kind of thing. So doctors are trained in actually critically reading through the evidence and making a scientific evidence-based opinion out of that. So when doctors actually take the time to go through the scientific literature and look what there is on the science of nutrition and health, they can actually make their minds and be like, oh, wait a second, we weren't taught this in medical school, but I can see by the scientific literature that clearly plant-based diets aren't only possible, but they actually seem to be a lot better for uh, the population's health in general. So that's why I think a lot more doctors are coming out on their own accord, out of their own initiative, um, really advocating for a plant-based lifestyle or a vegan lifestyle as well. It does take time though, doesn't it? Like Dr. Gregor in a previous interview we did with him in the US said to us that it took 9,000 studies before the US government started putting out official material against the tobacco industry and smoking as in, you know, uh, as a cancer-causing practice. Because previously, doctors used to recommend tobacco, didn't they? They used to say, got a sore throat, smoke a cigarette, having trouble speaking smoke a cigarette <laughs> you know it's, yeah, no, it's, it's crazy, crazy to think it's, it's absolutely insane yeah the, the the scales of it is just it's just so incredible it's it's difficult to understand how you know it will take that much to actually get people to start advocating for this but again i think unfortunately it's it's the industry influence that really keeps these things quiet mm. And like, you know, doctors are human beings. Like anyone else, we are very prone to social conditioning or brainwashing and and we all have our misconceptions, our biases, our personal beliefs. So, Hmm. you know, a lot of doctors actually used to believe that smoking was fine for you. And a lot of doctors today believe that eating meat is necessary for good health. Yeah. It's, it's, I really like how Dr. Gregor puts it that, you know, the the meat and, and animal food industry today is basically like the tobacco industry of the mm. 50s and 60s. So yeah, he also hopefully. he also cites that um, leaked document which said doubt is our product, which was a leaked document by the tobacco industry, which basically was an, a, an advocating 
creating more doubt in the public's mind because people like to hear good things about their bad habits as one of the doctors um one of the plant-based doctors in the u.s says i've forgotten who you know people like to hear these things and when the media peddles this narrative that oh eat more cheese it's good for your heart according to this big meta study or you know people hear these things now when it comes to making good food choices people find it difficult you know we we who do you believe you know the average person on the street are uh, watching tv and reading magazines and listening to the radio and there's this message this you know as a vegan we call it the kind of carnistic message which is the carnism paradigm the carnistic belief system which yeah. says eating animals is normal needed and necessary and it pervades every part of our society we turn on the tv there are ads for burgers and and meat and steaks we open magazines and there are ads for you know chicken and nuggets and we, we walk down the street and there are billboards everywhere it's so difficult for people to make healthy choices in the western world and this and we wonder why there's so much obesity and heart disease and type 2 diabetes how can people how can people cut through all the bullshit and actually like (laughs) see beyond it because it's hard for people to do you know it's very easy for us as vegans and plant-based advocates to say oh eat like this because not everyone knows how to read scientific studies do they Mm. So. Absolutely, yeah. And, and the, you know, this is the million-dollar question. This is the, I think, probably the most important issue, and at least one of the most important issues in society today is, is just how do we form our opinions, right? Because, like you said, there's just this overflow of information, and you have all sides of every coin. People saying that keto is best. People saying that vegan is best. People saying that meat-only diets are best. <laughs> Yeah. You know, all, all Don't get me started things. about that diet. <laughs> oh, oh, you, you, yeah. We we should just stay away. Don't even mention that kind of stuff because that's <laughs> probably, from a scientific point of view, the most ridiculous fad that's. We come could up. speak on an hour, and, for an hour about that. I'm sure. <laughs> exactly, but but you know, I think as as someone who has been for a long time in in the science in the scientific field, and we've put a lot of emphasis in, in thinking evidence based, I would say that teaching people how to think basically like a scientist would be the number one thing because the hierarchy of evidence that I mentioned earlier is probably one of the things that illustrates this the best because people take the worst kinds of information and use that to form their opinions. I'm sure you've had loads of experiences in in the past where you've met people who have extremely, extremely strong opinions about things that they know very 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 little about yeah and i think as human beings i mean like like i said before we all have our biases we all have our misconceptions it's 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 a part of human nature to make mistakes we are even the smartest human being in the world will be wrong a lot of the time there's no such thing as a person who is always right and this is reflected in the hierarchy of evidence we are taught in medical school is it's basically a pyramid that that shows you the different types of evidence there are in the world and the quality of each kind of evidence so at the bottom you have the the worst kind of evidence and at the top you have the best kind of evidence and at the very very bottom you have expert opinion mm-hmm. so expert opinion is is actually the lowest kind of evidence when it comes down to quality so you know, you should never base your opinion solely on someone's someone's else's opinion, whether they be an expert or not. It doesn't matter how smart they are, how renowned they are in their in their uh, field. Everyone is can make mistakes, and 
expert opinion is the bottom. Now, the other really big misconception around expert opinion is that most people think doctors and, you know, a lot of these uh, paleo doctors are, are good examples of experts, which they are not because, like I said, most doctors don't get training in nutrition. But anyways, as we go mm. up the hierarchy of evidence, we go up, we get case reports, which are basically the scientific version of anecdotal evidence. Someone mm -hmm. comes across an interesting case, documents it, and there you go, that's case reports. Then you have things like cross-sectional studies, which are population studies. You look at a population, you look at their diet, you look at their disease rates, and you try to make conclusions out of that. Now that's not, you know, it's a lot better than the other two types of evidence that we talked about, but it's kind of just a snapshot in time. So you only get a, it, there's a lot of confounding factors that are quite difficult to control for. So as you go higher up, you have prospective cohort studies, which is where you actually take a group of people and follow them over time to see mm -hmm. if different exposures to different risk factors affect their probabilities of developing certain diseases in the future. So this mm -hmm. is a very, very good study design there's a lot of studies like this that have been done to show a lot of the benefits for for plant-based diets and then even higher up you have randomized controlled trials which is basically mm -hmm. the gold standard for most medications the problem with randomized controlled trials is you basically have to have people booked into a controlled setting where you see everything they do and you see everything they eat and you give them the placebo pill and the the, the experimental or the treatment pill and mm -hmm. they can't know which one is which obviously that is very difficult to do with food not to mention that the effects of foods usually take longer than the effects of medication so while this is the gold standard for medications it's not very uh realistic for for nutrition uh, also because you need a huge amount of people and over a huge amount of time and to do that was with a controlled environment would be extremely uh, expensive and uh, uh work intensive so there hasn't there haven't really been too many randomized controlled trials in nutrition except for um very uh the the quicker things such as there's some in diabetes control uh using plant-based diets and and uh comparing that to the diabetes association diets and stuff like that so there are a few but it's, it's quite difficult to do over a long term over the long term and then at the very top of the pyramid you have things like meta-analyses and systematic reviews where they try to combine as many studies as possible that are looking at the same variables to get uh, more power and when i say power i'm getting into the the scientific geek lingo here but basically it's just the ability of studies to predict real life correlations or uh, real-life uh, relationships between risk factors and effects. So the more mm -hmm. people, the bigger sample sizes you have in studies, the more power that study has. So when you combine many studies together, those predictions become more and more accurate. Now, just to finish off, and I know I've been speaking for a very long time here. Oh, no, no. It's in, I was just going to say, so this all this structure of, um, of analyzing information and understanding it, I think is definitely something that needs to be like disseminated into the public and there definitely needs to be more resources out there um, that are simplified and structured yeah. in a way that help people understand evidence. Do you agree? Yeah, exactly. Because this is, you know, this is basically the crux of how people form their opinions. And, and there are so many misconceptions out there that could be solved by people understanding number one, the weakness of expert opinion and and the tendency of human beings to be wrong and number two how complicated it is for something to become fact and that's what i was going to just mention now is that the the very very most important thing about the hierarchy of evidence that 
best type of evidence isn't even on it because we're just talking about single studies. And one study, no matter how good, is never the full picture. One study is one small piece to a large puzzle. So the biggest source of evidence, the, the best type of information is when you have many, many different studies being done by independent organizations in different places around the world coming to the same conclusions mm -hmm. again and again and again. That's when you really start thinking, okay, there is, uh, you know, there's, this is very, very Is that strong. a meta-analysis? So meta-analysis is, right? so meta is one study still, but it's one study that uh -huh. combines many other studies together. Mm-hmm. So obviously, and what's what's it called when you have the all the studies together that you just mentioned? Is there a name for that? No, that's there. There isn't a name for that because it isn't a study. I guess you could just say it's okay. It's so a review of all of the evidence. A lot of big organizations would do this. A lot of the, you know, uh, the Academy of Nutrition Dietetics, the World Health Organization, they would have a lot of scientists going over huge amounts of studies to come to conclusion. That's that's the only really accurate way of knowing something is when the scientific evidence consistently shows the same thing over and over again. And for example, a great example of this, when the World Health Organization came out with their statement that processed meats is a class 1A carcinogen and that red meats is a class 2 carcinogen, they actually had over 800 studies reviewed by, I think it was 22 of the leading experts and scientists going over all of these studies in detail. And that's the conclusion they came out with. And then people have, well, you know, there's this one study I found on PubMed that says it's not carcinogenic. So, you know, people have a really, it's, it's, there's this really, really big disconnect between what kind of evidence is, you know, people compare pieces of evidence that have a lot different weighting to it. Obviously, an organization going over 800 studies with 22 of the leading experts has a lot more weight to it than a random study you pull off of PubMed. But a lot of people don't mm -hmm. don't understand this, and that's I think one of the hardest okay. things is to, you know, get people to think in this way where you can more uh, accurately make uh, more correct opinions that will do you do you good in your own life. Yeah, it's like comparing apples and oranges, and I think this is an essential part of helping people understand what is fact and what isn't. Um, when it comes to kind of understanding food and diet as well, I think there's also another issue that is kind of pervades our society where we've reduced food to its constituent parts, yeah. carbs, fats, protein, and we don't talk about broccoli and spaghetti and bread, and you know, we're kind of like just talking about these macros and micros. Do you think it's a problematic in this way with the way people talk about Absolutely. food? Absolutely. I think I don't know. I don't know. It's just kind of how we talked about medicine, where we try to compartmentalize different organs, where as in reality, it's a it's a whole system. We see the same thing with nutrition. I don't know if it's just because humans are lazy or we try to make shortcuts for everything in our ways of thinking. But yeah, it's exactly as you say. We try to make everything about some small parts in the food, and and I think it, a lot of the studies that that are done, you can see you, you're taking okay. So broccoli is very healthy. Hmm, it might be because of this one phytonutrient. So let's take this, uh, let's say this specific antioxidant, put it in a pill, and then we're going to do a randomized controlled trial comparing that antioxidant to a placebo. And then there isn't much of an effect, and they're like, oh, well, it doesn't really do much. But then that is nothing to do with how those chemicals are actually metabolized and how they affect your body when they are ingested as a whole. You know, it's it's one of those things they say it's uh, the the sum is or or the whole is greater than the sum. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm saying this correctly, but you know the parts 
when you put the parts together in its original form and its original package, they are way more powerful than just taking those components apart and having them individually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, seeing things from a holistic perspective rather than, you know, I think that's the Western model though, isn't it? The Western way of thinking is to look at the symptom of something and treat it with medicine rather than looking at the body as a, a you know an orchestra a symphony as i was saying and kind of looking at all the other aspects of the body and trying to understand what 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 culminating factors have happened for this illness to yeah. occur um, it's very interesting and you know, we could probably talk uh, a, a lot longer about that side of sort of stuff because it's as you say there's so many things that we don't understand um, about the body's systems and there's still so much more to, yeah. to learn. Um, one of my favorite quotes I absolutely love is by Dr. Esselstyn who says, um, life, uh, ge genetics loads the gun and lifestyle pulls mm. the trigger. Do you want to talk a bit more about this? Because I think a lot of people say, oh, you know, my mother died from heart disease. I'm going to get it. My father had type 2 diabetes. Obviously, I'm going to get it. Do you want to just, just, just mention why this is a kind of problematic way of thinking? Yes, you've again, come across as it's a really, really good topic. And it's, it's so frustrating to me because it's, it's such a limited or a, a limiting uh, way of thinking. It, it really disempowers you as a person to take control of your health when you think this way. And, and it's not just the public. I mean, even doctors are at fault. Just uh, the week before coming here to Spain, I was at a lecture in, in the hospital in, in uh, Dublin, where one of the uh, diabetes specialists came and, and gave us a lecture about type 2 diabetes, and he opened the talk saying that diabetes is a genetic disease. And straight away, I was like, wait, hang on a second. Diabetes is not a genetic disease. Genetic diseases, just to clarify for everyone listening, genetic diseases are diseases that you are born with a certain gene, and therefore you will get the disease no matter what. No matter what you do, you are going to get that ge that genetic genetic disease. That that there is nothing you can do lifestyle wise. I mean, you might be able to do some things to alleviate symptoms or, or make it, you know, less uh, limiting to your to your life or to your quality of life. But you will be getting that disease no matter what. Now, in terms of things like diabetes, you have a, a genetic predisposition. They're, they've already identified over 200 genes, I think, that can increase your risk of getting type 2 diabetes. But by no means do those the presence of those genes in your genome mean that you will, no matter what, get those diseases. So there's a lot of things you can do in your lifestyle to prevent them. And uh, I think with with uh, type 2 diabetes, it's, it's the perfect example. I mean, most people or at least a huge, huge number of people will have one of these 200 genes that predispose you to diabetes. But depending on how you live, you will cause that disease to surface or you or not. So it's absolutely is a really, really limiting and a very dangerous way of thinking because, like I said, it, it, gives, it gives people the excuse to say, well, there's nothing I can do about it anyways. My father had it. My grandmother had it. So it's just going to happen. It's just the way it is. I was unlucky with the, the draw of the cards. I pulled the the short stick out of, the, yeah. of the, my genetics, you know, so it's, it's very, very limiting. It's very dangerous because for example, mm. type two diabetes, mm. we actually have such, such strong evidence for plant-based diets in particular, how powerful the diet change can be and not only mm. preventing, but even reversing a lot of cases of type two diabetes. So it's, it's, it's just really frustrating to see people propagating this belief 
because it's 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 purely incorrect. Again, it's just misinformation. People believe what they hear, and uh, unfortunately, this has a really negative effect on their actual health and their life. Yeah, so that leads me on to my next question. Obviously, the type 2 diabetes is becoming incredibly um, prevalent in the Western world and also now creeping its way across Asia as Western, as the Western diet, as the sad diet, standard American diet, <laughs> uh, reaches, reaches, yeah, reaches into, its, uh, into Asia. Um, now, it's said, and many uh, doctors advocate for a whole food plant-based diet to reverse type 2 diabetes. What is the actual biomechanical process that's happening when you um, switch to a whole food plant-based diet and your type 2 diabetes um, begins to recede? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's, it's quite complicated, to be honest, with a lot of these diseases. Again, we all wish that there's a, you know one cause and everything is just going to be very simple to put out, but for, for diabetes as well, there's quite a few different things, just as it is for heart disease and a lot of these chronic diseases. But for plant-based diets and, and diabetes, basically type two diabetes is not a disease of sugar, which is the first misconception I was here. People say in Norway, it's even called the sugar disease. And uh, what happens in diabetes is you get high blood sugar. So people automatically assume that, you know, high blood sugars, that means sugar is the cause of this disease. Whereas when you actually look at the pathogenesis or the mechanism behind diabetes, it's actually saturated fat that has a much, much worse and much more direct um, relationship with this disease. So basically what happens is when you eat a high saturated fat diet, such as a Western standard American or SAD diet, is a lot of these fats get stored in the muscles and the liver in places where your body has receptors that are usually supposed to respond to insulin, mm-hmm. insulin being the hormone that regulates blood sugars. However, when you have a lot of fat and, you know, scientific terms, fat in the muscle, we call it intramyocellular lipid, which is a very unnecessarily long and complicated word to just mean fat in the muscle. And basically what that does is it blocks those receptors so that when your body produces insulin, it doesn't bind to the right receptors the way it's supposed to. And therefore, you are unable to take that glucose or that sugar into your liver, into your muscles, and effectively regulate the sugar. So a lot of, you know, it's another example of of, of uh, people just, I don't know, trying to think or, or make assumptions too quickly about things where if you look underneath, you look at the cause, it is actually... Again, not the sugar that causes diabetes, but the fat. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you eat a plant-based, a whole foods plant-based diet, obviously you're usually vastly lowering your saturated fat intake, and also you're increasing other things like vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients. Uh, you have a, a lot of uh, anti-inflammatory components of the plant-based diet, which really helps uh, reduce or decrease the inflammation in the body. So all of these things together tends to number one decrease the the insulin resistance that you have in your body or the inability to respond to the insulin that you produce and therefore your blood sugar start coming down and, and that's how people reduce diabetes so is the pancreas so in type 2 diabetes is the pancreas still producing insulin or does it completely shut down yeah so that's exactly right so in type 2 diabetes your pancreas is still producing insulin it's in type 1 diabetes where your pancreas 
stops producing insulin because your immune system is basically killing off the insulin producing cells in the pancreas. So in type two diabetes, your, your insulin production is completely fine. The problem is insulin resistance. So your body's ability to okay. respond to that hormone. And, and that's one of the things, you know, even medical students get this wrong all the time. And it's really, again, frustrating is people, again, see the disease, high blood sugar, well, must be sugar. Carbs are bad. Sugar is the problem. Sugar mm-hmm. is dangerous. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the science and you look at the experiments being done, there's even experiments that have been done where people get injected saturated fat straight into their veins straight into their bloodstream and then they measure their insulin sensitivity so how well their body can respond to the insulin they produce and so you can actually take a person give them a certain amount of of glucose right into their blood and then measure how much insulin they have to produce to get that blood sugar down and then you can inject saturated fat into the same person give them the same amount of sugar and that insulin spike gets way bigger and lasts way longer before that same amount of sugar gets controlled to the initial level. So it's remarkable. I mean, from all the evidence, yeah, all the evidence we have suggests that fat has a much more central role to play in the mechanism behind type two diabetes. And actually from the studies we have, the people who eat the most carbohydrates, who eat the most sugar actually have the lowest mm-hmm. risk of developing type two diabetes. So it's again one of those frustrating things where so many people get completely backwards, and we're taking our our sources of information from from websites, articles, even rumors on the streets, wherever you know, TV commercials, media, rather than the actual science. Mm. Well, thanks to people like you, there will uh, we will continually fight misinformation. So I think that's essential that we have more plant based doctors such as yourself, kind of going out there and standing up to all the bullcrap that's uh, being peddled by the mainstream media. And obviously also, you know, plant-based news, that's really why we exist. You know, it's why Klaus and I continue to work day and night because we want to build um, a global platform that really has the opportunity to stand up uh, and speak out against these kind of phony narratives, really, because it's essential. I mean, you know, like take heart heart disease, for example. It's over 100,000 people a year, I think, in the USA alone who die from um, heart disease. And, and is it something like 85% was it 95% of all cancers are pre- preventable because they are um, connected to lifestyle? Is that correct? Yeah, 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 I, absolutely. Yeah, and it's just no, insane. It's, it's, it's so, so important, like you said, you know, that the work that you guys do, I have so much respect. It's, it's, it's absolutely great. So keep it up. I mean, thank you. Seriously, it's, it's, it's really inspiring to see people like you guys putting the information out there because that's, that's what we need is we need to, we already have the science people believe that we we're still, you know, behind that we still, there's a lot of, that we need to find out before we can know whether or not the plant-based diet is, is safe or good, but that's not the case. The science is already mm-hmm. there. What we need now is, it is. is for people to actually realize this and for people to actually learn about this information. So, you know, absolutely. We we do. We have to shout it from the rooftops. Exactly. (laughs) When it comes to social media and technology and mental health, um, you're very active on social media. I mean, what are your thoughts on finding balance and how do you find balance? Because obviously, you know, you're, 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 you use it to advocate this message, but how do you figure out when to switch it off or when to put the phone down? Yeah, that's an amazing question. And I think it's, it's such a, a real, real issue today. Because it's, I think social media is such a mixed blessing. You have so many benefits to it. We're, we're able to connect with people all across the world. I mean, just like I'm sitting here in Barcelona, you're in Cape Town, and we're chatting away. It's, it's amazing. 
And we can see how people are living, what people are going through on all corners of the world. We can spread a message. Everyone has a voice. There's so many amazing benefits to it. But then there's also a lot of pitfalls, a lot of traps that people can fall into. And especially when it comes to mental health, I think it's a disconnect where we're really living more and more increasingly artificial lives and we're losing that touch, that connection that we we have with nature and you have to remember you know human beings we've been evolving for hundreds of thousands or millions of years and for the vast majority of that we have been for the most part outdoors we are we are animals like any other animal we're we're supposed to be outdoors we're supposed to have fresh air to feel the sunlight on our skin to to feel the wind you know and to move our bodies and for me at least personally when i spend a lot of time outside i feel a hundred times better than when I am stuck in an office the whole day. So I would say to anyone that uses social media, and for myself at least, it's sometimes easier said than done. You can easily, you know, before you know it, you've spent a whole hour on social media and you're like, oh, whoa, what have I been doing, you know? But I think I think if you're concentrated on using it for self-development or for learning new things, for learning practical knowledge that you can actually apply in the real world and you can you can get something beneficial out of or, you know, even connect with people and uh, and make friendships and stuff like that. But that, I think the problem with a lot of social media nowadays is we just get stuck in this comparison mode, right? Do you go on some celebrities uh, page and you start looking at their amazing life and you're just thinking, oh, I wish I was doing this and I wish I was doing that and I wish I had this and I wish I had that. And it just becomes this really... I guess gnawing mentality of just just erosion and and, and jealousy and, and and this constant feeling of lack that my life lacks all of these things that I see on social media. So it can definitely be be very dangerous in that way. And I think that's that's why it's so important to uh, kind of be a little bit careful not to fall into that. Try to use it as much as possible for your own goals, whatever you you want, but not fall into that hole. Uh, that how do you how do you switch off from it though like personally from a from a day-to-day perspective like when you find yourself on instagram for like two hours you say or three hours or whatever and you're like oh i've been on this thing continuously do you have any practices that you do to kind of switch off the phone or you know what do you how do you get away from it mm-hmm. yeah basically uh, most most of the time i will try to keep my instagram as in you know replying to direct messages and stuff like that. I'll try to keep that too, just once in the morning and, and once in the evening and try to keep that as short as possible. And then throughout the day, I'll only pick up the phone and use Instagram if I'm making a vlog or I'm storing something, but I won't actually use it to scroll through other people's stuff. Um, and I think also just whenever you're deciding to do something else, just completely be there, be present, be 100% fully there in the moment doing whatever it is you're doing and don't even think about Instagram. I mean, you could, I guess, even turn off your phone or put it on airplane mode or something. Um, but it's just having those rules where you you don't allow yourself to spend you know, hours at a time looking at a screen because even though it's very easy to do, and I'm sure, I mean, I've definitely experienced it. I'm sure you've experienced it before. Once you turn it off and you realize what you've done, you actually feel like crap afterwards. You know, you have a headache and your your mood is down and you're just like, oh, why did I just do that? That was horrible. Um, 
So yeah, I think it's just having a routine where you put it away, get on with your day, do other stuff, and uh, yeah, just just go out in nature, enjoy the sun. <laughs> Last few questions before we wrap up. Um, so, what is uh, what does Leo eat in a typical day? What's the kind of what kind of food should we be focusing on for good health? Okay, um, <laughs> so for 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 me, I, I basically I'm, I'm not a very picky eater. I'll eat almost anything obviously vegan and, and whole foods is the way to go uh, for, for your health now i would say that the top four categories and this is something that they really push at the barnard medical center in washington dc um, i don't know if i mentioned to you i spent uh, a few weeks there this summer doing an internship amazing and i got to see how a lot of the doctors work in real life practice with not just vegans, but people who have no idea about veganism come in, they get canceled about the plant-based diet, and you actually see the real life, you know, people coming in with high blood pressure, with high cholesterol, with high blood sugars, with a, a, a high BMI or mm. just overweight, and you constantly see them month after month, their cholesterol drops, their blood pressure drops, their blood sugar drops, and people are being taken off their medications. And, you know, just to see that with your own eyes and not just mm. look at the evidence and the research, but seeing real-life examples just really hit it home for me. So, you know, that was amazing. And the things that they really try to emphasize there are, are the they, what they call the power plate. So it's a plate where the four main food groups that you can eat basically unrestricted as much as you want of are vegetables, fruits, legumes, and whole grains. And then apart from that, obviously you can also eat other healthy things such as nuts and seeds but these are a little bit higher in fat so you don't want to overdo them you know you talk about a handful a day things like this but i I mean vegetables fruits legumes and whole grains eat your until your heart's content you can't really overdo those um so for me personally it's a lot of uh, a lot of oats uh porridges smoothies I, i love to have curries beans lentils kind of stuff and um yeah i would say just just keeping whole foods i mean nowadays it's so easy to go online and find really nice recipes there's another misconception you know that eating healthy has to be boring nowadays you'll find hundreds of amazingly delicious recipes online using whole foods so you can eat healthy mm. and still really really tasty and really enjoy your meals so it's, it's basically just about the ingredients if you're keeping your meals whole foods then you're good to go Absolutely. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask my guests, um, if you were on that desert island where there was the pig, you know the desert island and you're stuck on the desert island with the pig? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, obviously, you're... you're yeah, the one, that's, that's the one that all, all vegans are, are uh, threatened yeah, with all yeah, the time. That, yeah. Dreadful island. Exactly. Well, obviously, you're a vegan, so you're not going to eat the pig. The pig's your, your friend. If I could give you one, mu- exactly. one music album, <laughs> one vegan dish, um, and one book that you could take with you to your vegan island, what would they be Ooh, that is a difficult question <laughs> okay so a vegan dish i would just have to go with rice and black beans that's basically the staple i grew up on you know my mother we used to just cook that so my mother's rice and black beans that will keep me happy no matter which island you throw me on um in terms of album oof, i don't know I, i'm not really a a, a huge uh, music, you know, uh, enthusiast in terms of having a, a particular album or, or mm, I would say 
perhaps um well actually yeah there is one one type of music i like to listen to which is a little bit out there it's not so normal maybe i'll i'll use that one so this is a little bit strange for some people probably but when i work out i like to listen to instrumental uh, kind of um epic music you know kind of like the style of music that you put in trailers for movies and stuff like that, that really oh, cin- cinematic yeah, cinematic yeah music. exactly so that kind of music that really Amazing. gets you pumped you know when you're lifting your weights here that you feel like you're actually doing something good for the world <laughs> so, <laughs> there's a band called uh, two steps from hell which produces uh-huh. a lot of really good like kind of cinematic trailer music so i, I actually enjoy listening to that for, for my workouts in case you know i get to work out in this desert island with my pig um and then what was the third thing your book book book, what would you take with you oh wow okay um does it have to i mean i've i've read a lot of books that i've really enjoyed lately Uh, i know if you've heard of sapiens and uh homo deus by yuval noah harari i have those are really great books uh there's some really good ones on social psychology that i've read there's uh how to win friends and influence people um there's a, a one I really, really enjoyed was The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. Mm, that's a good book for keeping your keeping yourself sane on the island alone yeah. with the pig. <laughs> yeah, I think I think you're right. I think I would go with that one just to keep my, my mental health in check while, while I'm on the island. Fantastic. Um, well, yeah. that's that's great. Well, Mr. Leo Venus, thank you so much for joining us on the PBM podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to have had this chance. And uh, Robbie, keep doing the great work you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is the PBN Podcast. We'll be back next week with more veganism, health, fitness, fashion, and everything in between.